0: Good afternoon, it's Wednesday the 21st of February 2024, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News, I'm your host Mike Robinson. Joining me today we have Vanessa Bailey and Charles Mallet, uh, and also James Rogalski will be on uh, a little bit later. Uh, we're going to get kicked off today Vanessa with the question of a ceasefire in Gaza um, what's the latest?
1: <laughs> yeah, the delightful Starmer. I'm I'm starting to kind of make up names for these people, like Sneer Karma. Karma. Um, But anyway, allegedly he's called for immediate humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza, which goes against his previous stand, which is Israel has the right to defend itself. Um, And if we can just move on, I can um, just have a look at what Labour has now called for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza for the first time in an attempt to head off what threatens to be the biggest rebellion against Kiristama since he became party leader. So nothing political about this decision at all, sarcasm intended. Opposition whips published a 237-word amendment to a Scottish National Party motion on Tuesday, setting out the party's stance on the Middle East crisis, which they hope Labour MPs will um, back instead of a separate amendment from the SNP, calling much more bluntly for a ceasefire a Labour Party spokesperson has made the following comments to various media outlets, including the BBC. Um, so he's, he's reiterating the amendment calls for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire, whereas in reality, the SNP is calling for a ceasefire. Um, humanitarian ceasefire to me means a pause in hostilities, um, which will not be respected as it hasn't been historically by Israel and will then allow Israel to continue with the genocide immediately after. Um, the, the focus on the need for Israeli hostages to be released and returned quite extraordinary, considering that there's an estimated 5,000 to 6,000 Palestinian hostages that have been taken both in the West Bank and from Gaza um, since October the 7th, of course, not mentioned. This is from Robert Paston, um, the ITV uh, political editor. He understands this was about 10 hours ago. Keir Starmer will order his MPs to vote against the SNP's motion calling for a Gaza ceasefire um, because he hates the SNP's charge that Israel is engaging in the collective punishment of Palestinians, despite the fact that the ICJ has deemed it a plausible genocide. Starmer is still not um, admitting that. Um, he knows many of his MPs will rebel against this three-line whip. The stakes will be highest for members of his front wrench team because they would be sacked if they vote in opposition to his instructions. So it's a gamble um, from Keir Starmer. It's certainly not a genuine desire to end hostilities against the Palestinians. And then bearing in mind the focus on the Israeli hostages. Um, Israeli finance uh, minister Smotrich sparks outrage after saying returning Gaza hostages is not the most important thing. And we know that a number of hostages have been killed um, by the the Zionist hostility and bombardment of uh, Gaza. Um, So at a spontaneous demonstration following his remarks, a father of an 18 year old in captivity said anyone who thinks the hostages aren't important then let them kidnap your children and then you can talk. Um, basically, Smotrich, um, he said, he was asked if returning the hostages was the most important thing. And he replied, no, it's not. Why do you want competition? Everything is important. And he then also said uh, on uh, public radio, he is, of course, known as the far right finance minister under the Netanyahu coalition regime added that calls to release the hostages at any cost are incorrect and irresponsible statements. According to him, the only way to get back, get them back, is to defeat Hamas and increase military pressure even more. That's what brought about the previous deal. So what does that of course mean? That's effectively a green light for uh increased bombardment and ground invasion of Rafah in the far south of Gaza that's supposedly the safe area and the last remaining safe area that has been bombed heavily um, for at least a week now. Um, Moving on, um, Algeria called for uh, a UN Security Council vote on Gaza ceasefire resolution. US, uh, this was a few days ago, says it will veto the resolution. Algeria was representing a number of Arab states. And sure enough, The U.S. vetoed the resolution demanding an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. The U.K. abstained for the usual double act. Um, But I want to just listen to the statement from the U.S. ambassador to the U.N., Linda Thomas-Greenfield. Pay close attention to the last uh, section of her statement.
0: We intend to do this the right way so that we can create the right conditions for a safer, more peaceful future. And we will continue to actively engage in the hard work of direct diplomacy on the ground until we reach a final solution.
1: I think we can start with Interesting wording there, the use of the final which, of course, is what we are witnessing, the um, genocide of the Palestinians in Gaza and uh, in the West Bank. And the U.S. basically vetoed the Algerian uh, resolution calling for an immediate ceasefire on the basis that they're actually working on a draft resolution. Um, But I just want to focus. I could show an awful lot of very distressing footage, particularly from Rafa. Um, of the recent bombing campaign uh, by the IOF that has effectively wiped out entire families in Rafa and particularly amongst uh, the refugees there. Over 1.3 million people have gathered from different areas of Gaza to the so-called safety of Rafa. But I'm going to focus on uh, northern Gaza, the famine and starvation And this video is from a journalist in the North who's covering events there. And of course, the IOF has basically been sniping civilians that are trying to reach the meagre supplies of flour and humanitarian aid that is literally trickling into the North that is really suffering uh, famine conditions now. And there are reports that the IOF has effectively created a road cutting northern Gaza from southern Gaza um, which will be occupied by the IOF forces. So if, effectively, there will be no escape from the south to the north, and no escape from the north to the south, from here on in. So this is a journalist um, in northern Gaza talking about conditions there. <laughs>
0: على طعام أو شراب أو أي مقومات للحياة نحن في المرحلة الأشد والأصعب على أبناء شعبنا هنا في شمال غزة الاحتلال يتعمد ذلك ويتعمد تجويع المواطنين هنا في شمال غزه ويتعمد منع دخول المساعدات والمواد الغافية والإنسانية نحن الآن في كارثة والأمر يشتد الآن علينا يشتد بشكل كبير لا نستطيع
1: and in Rafah also, um, Egypt has basically not been opening the Egyptian Rafah border into Gaza to allow humanitarian aid in. And there is um, increasing uh, starvation even in uh, Gaza, uh, Rafah itself. This is just a very quick video released today of people in Rafa trying to um, get bread uh, from uh, the supply. Um, Actually, a friend of mine who I've been able to get in touch with on a fairly regular basis, he was um, displaced from the north, finally, to Rafa via Khan Yunus in sort of central Gaza. He told me that when you walk on the streets, you are literally walking among, as he describes it, the walking dead. He said they're like zombies. They're starving. Uh, They're terrified. They're traumatized. Um, and, of course, there, there is no medical care now in Rafa. There's no actual hospitals. There's only a, a sort of a very basic medical center. The other main hospitals have been destroyed or taken over by the IOF. Um, and, of course, uh, the U.S. veto, that's the fourth so far um, to prevent any kind of immediate ceasefire or even demilitarization, which, of course, is what it should be. From Gaza by the Israeli forces. Um, the first was a resolution from Brazil, then from UAE, then Russia, and now Algeria. So the US is clearly facilitating um, the genocide, and so is the UK.
0: Yeah, well, uh, the UK is very proud of uh, never having used its veto and only ever abstaining <laughs> on this. But uh, I mean, is the US given any indication of when uh, its draft resolution is going to make an appearance? after after no. the final solution, no doubt.
1: <laughs> no. And of course, you know, ongoing with, with the potential shadow of a ceasefire, what does Israel do as it always does and has done historically? It increases the ferocity of the attacks um, yeah. against civilians.
0: Yeah. Okay. Thank you for that, Vanessa. Now we're going to come back to uh, the UK and to excess mortality statistics uh, because the ONS uh, pushed this out on X uh, earlier um, saying deaths registered in England and Wales in week six were 2% lower than the expected number, brackets 251 fewer deaths. Uh, Find out more about our new method for estimating the number of excess deaths replacing the use of five-year averages. And they have produced a nice little blog. So let's look and see what they had to say on their blog. Uh, They said the chosen methodology uses statistical models to obtain the expected number of deaths in each period importantly from this period, from this approach, uh, moves away from averages drawn from raw, raw numbers and instead uses age-specific mortality rates. Uh, this month, ONS will publish a methodological article detailing the new approach. Uh, th- this will contain estimates for periods before and during the pandemic uh, using this approach uh, and will compare the, with estimates from the current methodology. Um, so uh, that's what they're saying. Uh, but let's have a look at this uh, little um, estimation that they've published now, uh, which shows the methodology that they use. Now I'm not going to uh, show on screen the methodology from this, but if you want to go and look at it, look at it for yourselves. Have a look for estimating excess deaths in the UK methodology changes, February 2024. Uh, and but I'm going to show this table from it because this is what they are showing uh, the comparison of annual numbers of excess deaths estimated by the current and new methodologies, UK 2020 to 2023. Uh, And you can see that uh, the new method largely finds that there were fewer excess deaths than previously. Um, Now, if we just at the bottom of this uh, look at some totals, uh, what they're saying is that uh, using the old method, uh, that from 2020 to 2023, there were 216,103 excess deaths. Uh, of course, many of those being attributed to COVID-19. Uh, and using the new method, there were only 184,941 uh, excess deaths. And so that is a reduction over that period of 31,162 deaths. Now, uh, you'll notice that particularly for 2023, that seems to be having uh, a fairly large impact because uh, the for 2023, at least, the old way of counting would have counted 31,500 deaths, and the new method of counting is just under 11,000 deaths. Um, so you can decide for yourselves uh, whether this new methodology is the correct one or not. I'd be interested to see whether uh, what various academics think of this. But the point here is, of course, that what we saw uh, was the manipulation of excess mortality figures by the ONS during the course of the so-called pandemic anyway, because Uh, they adjusted uh, the time period that the five year year average was uh, calculated over uh, in the course of that period of time. So, um, well, I'd be interested to get, I'm looking forward to hearing what various other people have to say about this. Uh, In the meantime, of course, uh, we've got the pandemic treaty and all the associated uh, material with that. Uh, And first of all, I want to uh, bring this on screen. Uh, this is a briefing document with respect to a paper which has been published called Repair, uh, and uh, this is called entitled Rational Policy Over Panic. The evidence base of the pandemic preparedness agenda does not support the current urgency. Uh, and it says here, international health institutions are emphasizing an urgency to prioritize prevention and response to pandemics. Pandemic risk is characterized as an existential threat to humanity and is being used to justify proposed amendment uh, to the international health regulations and a new legally binding pandemic treaty, uh, pandemic agreement. Sorry, uh, this agenda is supported by unprecedented annual financial requests for over $10 billion in new overseas development assistance and over $26 billion in LMIC's investment with over $10 billion additional for One Health interventions. The World Health Assembly will vote on the World Health Organization instruments in May, June, 2024. So I'd like to welcome uh, David Bell to the program, who's one of the authors of this report. uh, And we'll just look at a couple more graphics from this uh, summary document in a second. But David, uh, welcome to the program. Um, Tell us uh, what the motivation was for this paper in the first place.
2: Produced by the Repair Project at the University of Leeds. the, the motivation is just to get a honest look at the uh, the evidence base for the supposed, you know, the urgency and the scope of um, pandemic risk. Uh, we're hearing, as you said, that from the World Bank, WHO, G20, that there's an exponential increase in risk. That there's an existential threat to humanity. Um, what we, so we've gone systematically through the databases that these organizations are using and through their reports and the citations. And essentially, what they're citing and the database they're using don't show this at all. There's an increase in reported outbreaks over the last 60, 70, 80 years, which fits very well with the fact that we can detect them. now. We've, we've invented PCR, um, point of care rapid tests, et cetera. So we can detect things that we couldn't detect in the past. Over the last 10 to 20 years, there's a reduction in mortality and in the number of outbreaks in their own databases. So what they're telling governments and what they're telling the public is very different than the actual risk that um, their own data shows, which uh, essentially has surprised us. Um, the, the, the difference between reality and their wording is so great.
0: Well, let me, let me bring this uh, table on screen then because this is from your document showing uh, events co- considered by the G20 to be major outbreaks uh, tw- 2000 to 2020 and the mortality associated with each of those. Uh, I, I take it these are uh, World Health Organization statistics. Uh, so you know that, that then brings into question why the urgency for this uh, massive global uh, infrastructure to be established.
2: Well, the the, table is interesting, Mike. So it's the two left-hand columns that are provided by the G20s report. And the one on the right is the best numbers that we could put on that from the literature. Um, the, the, The scholarship of the report is such that they don't even give these numbers, but they characterize this as major outbreaks occurring every few years for the last 20 years. So we have on that table COVID at the top, which it appears is not a natural outbreak. I think that's fairly well accepted now. And then um, you have the swine flu, H1N1, which was far less lethal than the normal seasonal flu, about a quarter of the normal mortality in 2009. After that, for all these outbreaks, you have a total of about 26,000 deaths, and most of those are Ebola, which is confined to West Africa. So this is a sort of information they're giving. There's, you know. 26,000 deaths is about five days of tuberculosis in the world in terms of mortality. But this is all the major outbreaks that they can come up with for the last 20 years. So it's just it's really illustrating that uh, this is why we hear about disease X from the WHO, because if you look at actual figures, the burden is so small that it would not justify the sort of money that they're asking for.
0: Yes, and and so uh, that particular graphic there that we just saw, uh, World Health Organization identifies nine priority diseases for research and development in an emergency context. Mm -hmm. This includes COVID-19 and a hypothetical outbreak disease X. Of the seven other diseases, only Ebola virus has caused an outbreak of over 10,000 deaths in recorded history. Uh, And so then you've got to ask, why are they uh, pursuing this so strongly as they are? Have you any thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, yeah. there's a lot of money on the table here. There's tens of billions of dollars. It's an unprecedented amount for public health. And there, there is a, a whole industry that's being built around this. So we already have thousands of people, uh, global health, you know, public health people in countries and in international organizations whose salaries are depending on this getting through. So we, we're building essentially an industry that is self-perpetuating, it's going to have very intensive surveillance. They will find threats because that's normal. You can find viral variants if you look for them, which is why we're finding more outbreaks now. And then uh, yeah, they have a, they're putting a mechanism in place through the WHO, the International Health Regulation Amendments and the WHO agreement that's being negotiated where they can lock down countries, lock down regions, produce a 100-day vaccine and then use that to give people their freedom back. And it's essentially, it's generating huge numbers of salaries and work for public health workers, and it's generating huge profits, or it will, for pharma as we saw it did in COVID-19. So it, it, I think primarily it's a business-driven, money-driven issue, but it's got to a point where we have international organizations who are now grossly misrepresenting the the actual risks to countries in order I think to get this money,
0: David. I'm going to say thank you very much for joining us today. And, and uh, just to finish this off, I mean, where do people find the full report? And, and in fact, I mean, what are your, what would you like to see happen with that full report at this stage?
2: Well, we would very much like countries, legislators, politicians, and so on to to look at this and to read it objectively. It's a uh, the report is it goes in detail through the reports of these organizations. Um, it's a factual report, it gives the actual risk, and then they we need to weigh you know, pandemics will happen, outbreaks happen. We, of course, we should be prepared, but we need to do this proportionate to other health issues, and that's what's not happening now. That's, so the, the report can be found at the University of Leeds, uh, I think we can put it on your website, hopefully, Mike, so that people can find the actual report.
0: Yeah, we'll have that in the in the notes uh, yeah. under this under this news. Uh, okay, David, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, James, Thanks, uh, maybe I could just invite you to comment on this uh, just for a couple of a few seconds. What, what are your thoughts on on this type of report and and the, the justification for uh, what we're going to be talking about in more detail in a few minutes with you.
3: With um, uh, work on this, and the two reports have a similarity. If you don't like the data, change the data. And you know, have, a new mo- you know, have a new method of um, estimating data. Have a you know, lie that says that there's a problem when there isn't a problem. And, you know, this is what we're dealing uh, around the world with, no inability to access data. When I have come to um, look at this in, in my mind, whenever I hear officials talk about misinformation, it triggers in my head that what they're dealing with is people like UK Column or David or myself or everyone else presenting the missing information that they don't want people to see. And and so, you know, the facts uh, are are much different than they would like us to believe. And as long as they can hide them or manipulate them, um, they can attempt to change public opinion. And so, you know, I will do everything in my power to spread the word on on, um, Dr. Bell's report. And it's going to actually mirror what I'm about to say with what we're talking about with the WHO. Read the original source documents. Get down to the original data. Whenever you hear somebody say something, the definition of that is hearsay. If it's interesting, go down and dig for the actual core documents. And you know, that's what I hope to talk about with what we had planned.
0: Okay. Thank you, James. Uh, Charles, uh, let me welcome you to the program. And uh, uh, you're, of course, still in Africa. Um, what's going on over there on the health front?
4: Thanks very much, Mike, and good afternoon, all. This follows David's segment rather neatly. Recently, I visited an African manufacturer of syringes called Revital, one of very few on the continent to have approved W. Uh, sorry, to have received WHO pre-qualification for an auto-disable syringe, essentially one that cannot be reused. Now. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, surprise, surprise, uh, put $4 million forward to make this happen. And I visited to better understand the apparent conspiracy between the pharmaceutical industry and its controlling influences to both create and solve a problem at the same time. So Revital, in particular, is... Uh, described in its press release as one of eight manufacturers who have this status, which is very difficult to achieve, and that it will cut down the response time for delivery of syringes throughout Africa. Again, they quote uh, Violaine Mitchell, the director of immunisation at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, as saying that Revital is paving the way to expand local production of syringes, And also highlighted, she says that they're proud to support Revital's efforts to sustainably expand the supply of these syringes in Africa. We'll come back to the sustainability in uh, a second. I've just got a couple of photographs of the production line of a facility that runs 24 hours round the clock and produces many, many different types of syringes. But as you will have seen in the Gates Grant form, they were initially to... Uh, sort of bolster the COVID-19 vaccine efforts and then to deal with what are being referred to as routine immunizations. Now, what do we mean by that? Well, of course, the situation has moved on and now the, the focus is on malaria and the delivery of a malaria vaccine. So we have the malaria vaccine implementation program, which says that as of October last year, the WHO now recommends, specifically highlighted there, the RTS. S slash AS one vaccine. Now, I've highlighted that for a reason that because it recurs throughout the literature. The the WHO go on to describe it as being the first malaria vaccine to uh, to be recommended in October twenty one, and that it's re- reached nearly too many two million children. Sorry, slip of the tongue, but probably fair to say too many um, in Ghana, Kenya, and Malawi since twenty nineteen. They, the WHO go on to talk about who develops and manufactures it. And this is where we begin to see what I'm referring to by, by way of a suggestion of a conspiracy. Of course, there is support here from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, just as there was for the manufacturer of syringes. Side effects very much downplayed. They say there's an increased risk of febrile seizures, but that they will dissipate uh, soon. And there's no other reference to any possible side effect, the African CDC has got very much behind it. And again, highlighted is the specific vaccine here, RTSS-AS01. They do at least uh, concede that it shows only partial protection against malaria in young children. But of course, that's where the focus lies, is on Young children. Now, what I should do specifically for the audience that may not have traveled to an area that's regarded as being a malarial zone or had any experience with malaria is that malaria is described here by the CDC as being something that has symptoms that are generally non specific. And there are many things listed fever, headache, malaise, uh, neurological complaints, pretty much anything. And it finishes with the diagnosis of malaria should also be considered in any person with fever of unknown origin, regardless of travel history. Well, that's a, that's an absolutely enormously blank canvas, and very much those that have been in country in belief in the emergency, it's very similar. And I would say, in terms of the medicine and the regard of the pharmaceutical industry. Malaria is Africa's blind spot and and whilst COVID and uptake of the vaccines has been very low in Africa due to a massive scepticism well-founded in the pharmaceutical industry, malaria, of course, is used as a catch-all to describe illnesses of almost any kind. So with that in mind, it's easy to see how the suggestion of a vaccine for malaria could produce results that uh, might not be found elsewhere. Um, and again, just at the bottom of that slide there, again get the CDC suggesting that despite the fact these could be symptoms of anything, patients suspected of having malaria should be urgently evaluated. So we wind the clock back now to 2013 to see where the partnership between GlaxoSmithKline and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation started. And the text of that press release then refers again to the RTSS uh, vaccine strain, um, specifically cited um, so what we'll do now is we'll just have a quick look at uh, sorry a listen to Ronique Vora who I spoke to the director of sales at Revital and this is his take on how the the, the cogs were within the pharmaceutical machine
2: I mean, Gates Foundation is not stupid to invest money in this organization. USA is not stupid to invest money in this organization. There must be something that Revital is doing for them to be confident enough to give millions of dollars into Revital for further expansions. As long as especially if you're proving to them. And all of these organizations at the end of the day are kind of linked to each other. Yes. Gates Foundation can call UNICEF in a jiffy and say, hey, how's Revital? What do you think about this? They can call Fine, they can call Path, they can call IFC, EFC, they can call any of these guys and say, okay, we're looking at investment. What do you think about this?
4: So exactly as he articulates there, that there really are wheels within wheels and due process uh, is really sort of cast to the wind. The other thing that I want to return back to is the idea of sustainability. I asked him very much about the the waste that's produced from their products, which are of course exclusively made from oil-based plastics and here from 2021 from the journal of waste management and research is a bit of text saying that the uh, you know estimate going back to 2021 that nearly 300,000 tonnes of medical waste every year is produced in Africa. And highlighted is the text that regular disposal of pharmaceutical waste into general waste has allowed streams of different medicines to enter landfill and aquatic environments in Africa. This has affected the quality of the surrounding land and water accessed by the residents and wildlife. Now, that's something that's just not talked about by those that would be the same people who are, of course, sponsoring such initiatives, very much banging the the drum for climate and uh, the environment, but at the same time, not in any way checking the businesses that they're sponsoring on the other side of the fence. On screen now is a photograph of the production facility. This is all the raw material plastic that will go into those syringes. And these are the moulding machines that run 24 seven to produce these these, uh, disposable plastics for which there's no plan and there's absolutely no Uh, pressure on the the industry to change the way in which they're producing. So it's it's, it's very contradictory, and one might say, in fact, completely hypocritical, really. Now, I concluded by asking him what his sort of projections and predictions were for 2024-25. And this could be extrapolated probably across Africa, but he referred specifically to the government of Kenya, who are sending 100,000 healthcare professionals out to more remote communities in order to educate about health. I think we can see where that's gonna go. Um, Concurrent with that, Revital are going to put another 100,000 subcontracted employees into a similar role, but specifically to take testing equipment out to rural communities. And lo and behold, they will also be able to provide treatments for anything that may be identified by such tests. He was also very quick to point out that malaria and diabetes would be the priorities in terms of vaccine delivery for this year, not just within Kenya, but Africa as a whole. So it's a, a fascinating insight. Um, and as I say, that they, they really came across as being a, a naive but willing participant in this scheme, unaware really of exactly how they're being manipulated through funding um, in, in order to achieve a particular aim. Also worth noting that he himself was very much aware of the rush within which the COVID vaccines had been produced. He had several vaccine-injured friends. Um, And so, you know, I I hope to be able to make the full audio recording available at some point.
0: Yeah, uh, thank you, Charles. Thank you for that. Uh, James, uh, let's welcome you back to the programme now at this point, and uh, uh, of course, you're here to talk about uh, the the latest developments with respect to the the, uh, World Health Treaty and the uh, IHR, but what are your thoughts on, on that?
3: Well, you know, the parallels are absolutely um, astonishing. Uh, you know, the naive um, involvement in these plans, you know, I think uh, is universal. And, and so what I'm uh, hoping to talk about, if, if you want me to just jump right into it, is um, what's going on now is the treaty. Most people call the pandemic treaty. Negotiations are going on this week, next week. Then they're going to take a two-week break. They're going to come back for another two weeks, and because they're having difficulty reaching agreement, they're talking about having additional um, negotiations into you know March, April, maybe even into May. And I want to make sure people distinguish between the two separate tracks. There are negotiations for amendments to the international health regulations, which are separate from the new pandemic treaty. Now, we've talked about before that the deadline to reveal to the nations what the final um, package of amendments to be considered in May um, has already passed. They failed to um, propose any package of amendments um, by January 27th of this year, a couple of weeks ago, which is four weeks in advance of the May 27th start of the assembly. And there is a rule, Article 55 in the international health regulation saying that they have to do so four months in advance. So arguably, if they were you know, likely to follow their own rules, they missed their deadline and they should not be able to even consider amendments at the um, upcoming World Health Assembly in May. Now, there are 12 points in the new version of the pandemic treaty that I'm just going to touch on very quickly. But the core of what i want to get across to people is you can actually read these documents you know please listen to what we're talking about but go to the source and see for yourself what these documents actually say it looks you know to me like a financial venture capital prospectus to build out The you know pharmaceutical, hospital, emergency, industrial complex in places like Africa or other low-income nations. So number one on the list is that while people call this a treaty or an accord or by many other names, they've always said from the beginning that they want it to be a framework convention, and that really matters because what that means is they can agree to anything, but what they're really agreeing to is in Chapter Three which is an ongoing yearly meeting, a a conference of the parties, very similar to the Framework Convention for Climate Change, where in 1992, all the nations signed on to a framework, but then year after year after year, that framework gets filled in with details that we the people don't have any input into. Now, they want to create a massive bureaucracy. They don't call it the um, Conference of the Parties in the newest version. They call it the governing body of the pandemic agreement, and they've got at least 10 other committees that they would want to create. Again, as David Bell said, they want to put billions of dollars into this to massively expand, you know, big pharma, but the core that they're having great difficulty with is what they call a pathogen access and benefit sharing system. If you look at this sideways, it looks very close, you know, to the proliferation of biological weapons. They want to use the One Health Surveillance Approach to go seeking out pathogens with pandemic potential. That's their term. Bring it into a WHO-coordinated laboratory network. They want to oversee gain of function. Believe it or not, that's in this document. And then they want to speed up the approval of products to treat these problems, which may or may not be causing death or disease, they may just be having the potential to do so, and then oversee a global supply chain and logistics network to deliver these products as the WHO directs. Now, there's not much talk at this point because the United States is working on speeding up regulatory approval and um, holding Big Pharma liable for any of these problems. They want to throw public money at that. The USA apparently was negotiating or, or dealing with those changes, and those articles, um, articles 14 and 15, are not yet available. But, um, you know, in addition to the attempts to censor any countering views, um, what I encourage everyone to do, um, I've put it all up on stopthetreaty.org, stopthetreaty.org. Um, read the document. Be careful when you read chapter one because you might end up getting diabetes because the language is so sickeningly sweet. It's, it's just filled with propaganda. They figure people will start reading it, only read chapter one, think, hey, it sounds pretty good. The, the sleep-inducing meat of it in chapter two, if you read a chapter, uh, uh, you know, an article uh, a night, you won't need um, a, a sleeping pill or any kind of sedative for about a month and a half. Um, But you really want to read chapter three, because that's where they would set up this zombie bureaucracy that would meet year after year after year to decide how to disperse all of this money. And, you know, there's no audit trail. And I I think the the simplest point is Tedros recently said that he has, uh, the WHO has a 20000 square meter distribution point in Dubai. Just think about how many you know, f- soccer fields that might be, and imagine how much it would cost to get contracts to fill such a facility with pandemic-related products. This is a business deal, and it's as corrupt as anything you could possibly imagine. You know, This is organized crime in its development phase.
0: Yeah, James. Thank you very much for that, um, uh, David. Let me just uh, bring you back to see if you've got any any final th- comments on what we've covered since uh, in the last couple of minutes.
2: I, with what James said. Essentially, you know, the, the, this is built on air. Um, it, it's an industry. It's, they're building a self-perpetuating mechanism, which will. Uh, Absorb huge amounts of funding. It must find reasons for its existence in order to survive. So it will find it will um, spread fear about um, exaggerated risk of outbreaks, and it will use that to sort of get more money, more funding, and keep this mechanism going. And. It needs to be, you know, there needs to be a pause, essentially. Countries need to stop. There's no reason whatsoever to have these instruments go forward, as James said, in May for a vote at the World Health Assembly. They're, you know, they're not ready. They're, as we showed through the University of Leeds work, there's a lot of misrepresentation of data within these and justifying these. So everyone needs to step back. There's no rush in this. Um, there's a huge opportunity cost because other diseases, such as malaria, tuberculosis, that kill very large numbers of people, diabetes, they will suffer um, in order to move money to these very small, very rare problems, which we're now building a whole industry around.
0: Okay, br- brilliant. Thank you, David. Thank you, James. Uh, uh, we need to move on now. But thank you very much for joining us today. Okay, if you like uh, what the UK Column does, if you would like to support us, please head over to support.ukcolumn.org. There are options to, to help us there, uh, and that would be very much appreciated. You could pick something up at the UK Column shop, uh, but uh, please share anything you find on the various platforms, especially ukcolumn.org, Uh Now, yesterday I was speaking to David Siegel, Uh, on climate science. Uh, And uh, if you haven't seen that discussion yet, please do go and have a look at that. Uh, And a quick reminder that on Sunday this week, we'll be holding a symposium on midazolam uh, entitled the Midazolam Murders, Exposing State-Sanctioned Involuntary Euthanasia. Uh, Join us for that uh, if you possibly can. That will begin at 6 p.m. UK time uh, on Sunday evening. Um, and, uh, and tomorrow, uh, sorry, we don't have a graphic for it, but tomorrow uh, at 1pm there'll be a discussion with Brian and Diane Rasmussen-McCady, uh, one of the Gutsy Women series, do uh, join at 1pm for that as well. Now back to you, Vanessa, and uh, uh, well, the United Nations, uh, and well, this is quite a dark topic, I suspect.
1: Yeah, um, this is a, a new report that has just been published um, by UN experts that include Francesca Albanese, who's been very much vilified by Israel for speaking out strongly um, against the genocide of Palestinians um, throughout the Palestinian territories, including Gaza. UN experts are pulled by reported human rights violations against Palestinian uh, women and girls, and if we can just have a look at a section of the report, Um, they have been arbitrarily executed in Gaza, often together with family members, including their children, according to information received. Um, We are shocked by reports of the deliberate targeting and extrajudicial killing of Palestinian women and children in places where they sought refuge or while fleeing Some of them were reportedly holding white pieces of cloth when they were killed by the army or affiliated forces. They expressed serious concern about the arbitrary detention of hundreds of Palestinian women and girls, including human rights defenders, journalists, and humanitarian workers in Gaza and the West Bank since 7th of October, when we were talking about hostages previously. It's fine, we can move on to the image, Mike. So, this is an image of Hadil, uh, the mother, and her child, Imad. Um, I do warn people that the section of video that we're going to show is distressing. Um, I would say that the mother, Hadil, did not survive the sniping by IOF forces as they were trying to flee Gaza City. Her son, her little boy, Imad, was injured, and you will see that he was rescued, and so far, he has survived um, the Israeli ravages. So I do warn this is distressing. Thank you, Mike. And, of course, we're actually seeing many reports of this, of injured Palestinians um, being forced to basically bleed to death for upwards of 24 hours because the Israelis are firing um, on anyone trying to rescue them. There are multiple cases on a daily basis. Um, The report says that they're particularly distressed that Palestinian women and girls in detention have also been subjected to multiple forms of sexual assault such as being stripped naked and searched by male Israeli army officers. At least two fem- female Palestinian detainees were reportedly raped, while others were reportedly threatened with rape and sexual violence. They also noted that photos of female detainees in degrading circumstances um, were reportedly taken by the Israeli army and uploaded online. Um, there is a dist- disturbing report of at least one female infant forcibly transferred by the Israeli army into Israel and of children being separated from their parents whose whereabouts remain unknown. So the first video is actually one of the female uh, detainees from Gaza who was returned to Gaza speaking about what happened uh, to them.
0: دونا على المعتقل كانوا يمسكونا زي
2: الكلاب يمشونا من شعرتنا هيك كانوا في الدبسات تحت الباروده وظهرنا بالبساطير عفادنا يجيبوا الصندل ويعوجو حتنا
1: دميت شعرتنا تفتيش حتى وانت عاريه يفتشوا جسمك uh, this kind of humiliation is extremely disturbing um, for these Palestinian women, but also for the men who were forced to actually witness the humiliation of the women. You will see that this testimony, um, the guy is visibly disturbed by what he, he saw and by the, the absolute abuse of the women prisoners that were alongside him.
2: هذا تفاصيله لا كان من ضمن اسرات المعاناة أسيرتين مرقوهن علينا داخل القسم أو داخل المعتقل اللي إحنا كنا فيه لهو خيام عاريات لا يوجد علينا سوى الأواد أنا واحد منا مشاهد بنطلوني في هذيك اللحظة أرمي أسطر في البنت تعرضت للاعاقات لمدة ثلاثة أيام متواصل تحت تعرض الضرب واحد من الأسيرات بعد ما طلعت من عند المخابرات أو من تحت التحقيق مرقت شعرها طويل طلعت شعرها مقصوص فش إلها شعر عارفين أنتوا هذا الكلام no.
1: i mean you know the longer that that this genocide continues and the more of these reports come out that what we're watching um minute by minute is is quite horrific
0: yeah okay thank you for that vanessa uh Charles, let's come back to you and uh, move back to Africa and Addis Ababa, the African Union summit taking place.
4: That's right, Mike. The uh, annual summit has just concluded in Ethiopia, the African Union, which gives us the chance to evaluate the suggestion that uh, multipolarity may challenge the world order, if so, how, and to what end. So uh, we just look at, uh, as a reminder, Agenda 23, which is supposed to be the driving force behind the direction of the African Union at the moment, highlighted texts suggesting that it's focused on decolonisation and that Agenda 2063 is built on existing African frameworks, programmes and declarations consultations with a broad spectrum of African stakeholders. Indeed, that is the case. We see here a tweet from the African Union Education Programme saying that the theme for the year is education in Africa, but already there's mention of the UN Sustainable Development Goals, uh, reference to SDG4 targets. So we see exactly what sort of meddling is there in this apparent era of decolonisation, and we've got the UN Conference on Trade and Development urging governments to create widespread adoption of digital technologies. The uh, AU themselves talk about the implementation of the 2030 Agenda and Agenda 2063, so huge overlay there, and indeed from the AU website, um, a slide showing that there is a linking of Agenda 2063 and the SDGs. So uh, there was quite a lot of text in background before the the summit started, and I thought of particular interest was the statement on the UNESCO website, um, with particular regard to education. They they stated that the official launch um, was on February 17th in Addis, and it will be preceded by a pre-launch event. The pre-launch event will bring together uh, many different entities, the chairperson of the AU, of the African Union Commission, but also notably UN agencies such as UNICA, UNESCO, UNICEF, the World Food Programme, and partner institutions, including NGOs such as Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the Global Programme for Education. So Africa not really forging the path of independence that it might be suggesting it is. So just digging deeper into the education piece, we look at what's uh, referred to as CSA, which is the Continental Education Strategy for Africa. And again here, tied into Sustainable Development Goal 4, which of course is owned by the United Nations and not the African Union. This comes from the AU Digital Education Strategy and Implementation Plan from September 2022, and quite rightly, they say that education is a sector that is fundamental to all other sectors. But uh, in common with what we're seeing across the more developed world, there is this obsession with digital technology being used to access information and public services highlighted there. And of course, the suggestion that people must be able to confidently participate in the digital economy. Again, like with so many of these digital initiatives, there's no sensible or rational articulation of why a digital platform is either necessary or better than the existing uh, form of that particular Identity document or format. So um, the, the AU keeping us guessing there. But what they do go on to refer back to again, exactly like in the developed world, is that digi- digital education is vital for recovery and resilience in post-COVID-19 Africa. Essentially, we wouldn't be we are now without having it. So the vultures are given the opportunity to circle with this in mind so just a a quick portfolio of those that are now sniffing about in in the sort of digital education environment here we've got DEA Digital Education uh, Africa Network Um, also more familiar the Oracle Academy referring to its ninth uh, African summit which was just last year and then of Blair Institute and its digital academy which Ben Rubin has spoken about in uh, recent UK column news. Um, Oracle, of course, will, I presume, stick in the mind of, um, of many members of the on Here's the president of Kenya, William Ruto, um, tweeting just at the end of January about a partnership between government of Kenya and Oracle. Uh, worth noting that the president of Oracle is called Scott Twaddle. Ruto goes on to suggest that this was Oracle's commitment to aimed at delib- uh, sorry, driving the digital transformation of government, public institutions, business startups. But of course, what he fails to do, again, is explain why that's necessary, especially in a country that has such limited resources and, indeed, access to the very digital services that people are supposed to be able to utilise. So just a reminder of the direction in which these things going and even though the focus is education of course the moment we start to use references to companies such as Oracle we're reminded of the Tony Blair Institute and Oracle back in 2020 launching a vaccine management cloud uh, and indeed related very much to that and being rolled out in parts of Africa is the concept now of digital identity being something that's foisted upon Uh, a child at birth and worked in conjunction with uh, an immunisation record. So here we have the United Nations blowing the horn for Identity for Africa, ID for Africa, and look where they've had funding from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So again, no great surprises there. What I would like to draw your attention to at the moment is that Gates, although he doesn't declare it on any of his websites, at least I couldn't find a reference to it, is that he is now advising the government of Kenya at the moment on the rollout of their digital provision for identity, which they're calling Maisha Namba, which essentially is, roughly translates as a number for life. That's a progression from what was Huduma Namba, which was a service number, but they've had trouble all the way with this in terms of their use of data. And so it's it's worth noting that the High Court in Kenya, reported here on biometricupdate.com, cites the obstacle in the path raised by the High Court, saying that the lack of a data protection impact assessment has scuttled the Kenya government's rollout of the Maisha Number national digital ID project, with the country's High Court ruling it must pause The court intervention is a repeat of a decision that ultimately marked the beginning of the end of the digital ID schemes predecessor, Huduma number. And they go on the implementation of the associated chip bearing physical identity card, digital ID, unique personal identifier, and the national master population register must all halt until the project is compliant with Kenya's Data Protection Act. Now, I strongly suspect like you do that that obstacle will be cleared before a huge amount more time elapses. But nonetheless, notable that the court has actually stood up and said something to uh, to at least check the progress of this rolling out. So again, to go back to the question I posed at the beginning about multipolarity, and indeed, whether we do see it, I would say from what we've just been through, that in actual fact, we're seeing really a neo-colonisation and a new scramble for Africa, but particularly for digital Africa and that, in fact, all routes really lead to the same place and that the sense that there is any degree of multipolarity for any benefit to anybody is a highly questionable point of view.
0: Charles, thank you very much for that. Now, uh, in uh, James Roguski's 12 reasons to stop the treaty, number 12 is censorship. Uh, And uh, uh, so let's just talk about censorship to finish off the programme today. Of course, we'll start off with uh, Julian Assange, uh, and his court case uh, going on yesterday It's continuing today. Uh, yesterday, defense lawyers were arguing that uh, there's no evidence anyone had been harmed as a result of what WikiLeaks had done. Uh, they cited some case law talking about uh, or suggesting that prosecuting a journalist uh, for uh, doing what he did was unprecedented and so on. Um, but uh, they were focusing quite a is This, by the way, on screen at the moment is, is some of the people that were there uh, this morning or yesterday I, I think this was yesterday but let's just have a look at some of the the comments from the uh, from the defense because they were making the point that uh, the previous judges in the previous hearings uh, had been talking about uh, domestic legislation with respect to whether uh, a son should be uh, extradited to the United States or not and they were saying that they're citing the extradition act which says that a person's extradition to a category 2 category is barred by reason of extraneous considerations if and only if it appears that uh, and it talks about political opinions, it talks about things like race, religion and sexual orientation and things like this as well, but it refers to political opinions. It doesn't refer to political offences as such, which is what he is being accused of. Uh, And it also goes on to talk about uh, if uh, he might be prejudiced prejudiced at his trial or punished, detained, or restricted in his personal liberty by reason of his political opinions. Uh, But they were making the point yesterday that uh, the the previous judges were relying on this domestic legislation when they should have been relying on the extradition treaty, uh, which says very clearly that extradition shall not be granted if the offense for which extradition uh, is requested is a political offense. And this is the extradition treaty between the government of the United Kingdom of Great Britain, Northern Ireland, and the government of the United States of America. So uh, this is referring to a political offence, which is what Assange is accused of. Uh, and so that was uh, that was one of the main points that they were making yesterday. Of course, uh, the defence uh, finished yesterday. The prosecution is dealing with issues today. Um, but Redacted uh, carried this article um, yesterday, Um saying Julian Assange's judge previously acted for MI6, and they're making the point that uh, uh, the uh, judge in this case uh, had represented the Secret Intelligence Service and the Ministry of Defence in the past. This is Judge Jeremy Johnson, uh, and also a specially vetted barrister. So um, we may consider that to be a massive conflict of interest, uh, but we will wait and see what happens Uh, with Assange later. Uh, Now, moving on, then, of course, Ofcom has been active, and they've decided that they want to uh, bring an investigation uh, into GB News for their program, the People's Forum, the Prime Minister. Uh, They said that they've received around 500 complaints about the program, which aired on the 12th of February, 2024. Uh, They went on to say, we're investigating under rules 5.11 and 5.12 of the Broadcasting Code, which provide additional due impartiality requirements for programs dealing with matters of political controversy and matters and major matters relating to current public policy. Uh, and they went on to say that specifically rules 5.11, 5.12 require that an appropriate wide range of significant views must be included and given due weight in such programs or in clearly linked and timely programs. Now, of course, uh, we may, the, the, the GB News is making the point that they had an, a studio audience there. They didn't uh, vet the questions that were gonna be asked. But the question was, was this re- is this really about uh, not having a range of significant views or is this some kind of retaliation which, for something which may have happened on the programme? Let's just remind ourselves, because I'm sure most people have seen this, uh, but just remind ourselves of what did happen on the programme.
4: Hi, Rishbyshranak. I've got so much to say but such little time. My name is John Watt, and I'm one of the COVID vaccine injured in this country. I want you to look into my eyes, Rishi Sunak, and I want you to look at the pain, the trauma, and the regret I have in my eyes. We have been left with no help at all. Not only am I in here that's vaccine injured, there's another man over there whose life's been ruined by that COVID-19 vaccine. I know people who have lost legs, amputations. I know people with heart conditions like myself, Rishi Sunak. Why have I had to set up a support group in Scotland to look after the people that have been affected by that COVID-19 vaccine?
0: So again, I'm sure people will make up their own minds about what the uh, real problem with that programme was. Um, And then finally, uh, just to end with this, because the UK has announced uh, the new UK-Australia cooperation in online safety and security memorandum of understanding. Uh, This is all about... Uh, making sure that we deal with disinformation and misinformation appropriately. Let's just have a look at a little bit of the text. Both participants, that's the UK and Australia, will share best practice and deepen collaboration on countering misinformation and disinformation, which they say is a threat to our democracies and social cohesion. Uh, Both participants will develop and promote evidence-based online media and digital literacy initiatives for all user groups particularly underserved communities and groups most at risk of harm in response to online harms, including misinformation and disinformation. So we've seen bilateral and multilateral defence agreements over the last number of years with respect to uh, military activity. We're starting to see similar uh, deals being done between nations with respect to misinformation and disinformation, so-called, because government's becoming increasingly concerned about the truth getting out. Um, So uh, that is uh, another thing we've got to keep an eye on as they build this uh, censorship or disinformation industrial complex. But we will leave it there for today. I want to say thank you very much to Vanessa, to Charles, uh, to James and uh, to uh, David for joining us today. Um, We'll be back in a few minutes if you're a UK column member uh, for some extra. Uh, But otherwise, uh, we will see you on uh, Friday at 1 p.m. as usual. See you then. Bye-bye.